If you're enjoying getting better acquainted with me and with my guests, maybe you'd like to help other people find out about the show. There's a few easy ways to do that. You can go on iTunes if you've got five minutes and leave a review saying what you think of it. That helps it get higher rankings on iTunes and stuff like that. What the show really needs is word of mouth. And in this internet age, that means liking the show's page on Facebook or retweeting it or sharing the link to all of your Facebook friends or Twitter followers, doing whatever you need to do in whatever social networking site you use. And if you don't use a social networking site, well, hey, you can just tell your friends or email your friends and tell them about what's going on. I'm recording from now. Yeah, can you can you hear me reasonably well? I can now? indeed. Well, it's the mark of recording someone who's a sound person. <laughs> they're, they're expecting a sound check. They never do a sound check. I probably, oh, right, should, okay. I probably should though. I mean, I start and then I have to edge the mic closer and yeah. closer, to trying to keep eye contact with them. At the yeah, same time as well, it's the difficult mic. with people who don't have mic technique. So when I, I mean, I wouldn't do it for this this device. I mean, obviously listeners can't see it, but the, the typical setup I have is a mic and a pop shield. You know, like a like in the boy band videos. Yeah, yeah. And I will get right up to the pop shield and I'll talk quite quietly into the microphone. Thing. But people don't always do that, so they'll kind of they'll back forwards and move yeah. back, and they'll swing around, and you'll you know hear them clicking a pencil. And well, that's it. Go, I mean, that's why I don't do it with handheld mics or anything. Mm. So I've just realised we've got this on the table, and we've got cups of tea there, and every uh, time you're going to get you see. Yeah, and that's that's no good. Is well, it? I don't. I like I said to you just before we started. I don't <laughs> mind that because it's capturing a moment, so I don't really mind. And also, as I said, I edit things, so I will. Oh, you're going to get? Well, I'm going to well, put something soft. I'm, un- there, I'm so. unlikely to, to take them out necessarily I don't mind it but I know that you're fussy about the sound that <laughs> well, means... I can't hear it so you could be telling me it sounds amazing hello I'm Dave I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together I need to get better please make me better I want to get better 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 acquainted with you today we're getting better acquainted with Martin. Hello, Martin. Hello. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, it's it's my pleasure, and I mean, it's, it was weird to say Martin rather than Martin the Sound Man for me, as someone who listens to answer me this a lot. My wife Helen did this book about a year and a half ago, and we went to the garden party of Faber, the publishers, which is really posh. Yeah. And her editor is a lovely woman, but she didn't really like. She hadn't really met before. She, she was walking me around this garden party, introducing me as Martin the Sound Man to all of these literary types. Wow. He didn't like that. Haven't listened to the podcast though. Yeah. Either. Oh, they don't know. Uh, they don't know what that means. They got very confused. Yeah, I mean, I, I bet you. You've recently got married, and so you have changed your surname as well, which yeah. is quite an interesting. I, I mean, I think that's an interesting move for a bloke. I kind of admire yeah. it for sure. Well, it's 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 a it's a weird one, right? A woman by default changing her name it seems pretty sexist to me. Yeah, me too. But then equally well, why should a man change his name? That's equally sexist. Yeah. That's unequal. That's sort of saying a woman's name is more important. So. Then you led to the situation where you go, what about if you both keep your own names? That's not very romantic, I don't think. No. Just to keep your own names. There's no, it's like nothing's changed. Yeah. So the ridiculous logical chain leads you to go, well, you've got to take a, an amalgam of some, somehow. Helen Zaltzman, Martin Austwick would have been Zaltzwick. Yeah. Or um, Austman. Yeah. And that Austman's a t- terrible name. Zaltzwick sounds like a Dickens scribe. <laughs> and I was like, well, I'm not having that. So, I mean, Helen was quite keen on it, but I said, I'm going to go for Zaltz Austwick. That's my new name. 
Oh, not, it's not legally changed, but when I, I use that for work now. So when, yeah. I, when I advertise a, myself doing a conference or I do a paper, it's Martin's Old Source Work. Well, I, I, I noticed that you changed your name because of the fact that when I was Googling you in, in, to, to, to do research for the show, yeah. you, you know, your website moved to a different place because of your, yeah. your name change, which is great. I mean, has Helen changed her name as well? Or is she? Well, this is the thing. So <laughs> like, neither of us have le- legally changed our names because it's like we've both got a few years to run on our passports and we were just like, let's just wait. And she's not that keen on Old Source she said she's going to be Helen Austrick Zaltzman, but I've never ever seen her use that apart from on Facebook. So, like for work, she's still Helen Zaltzman, and that makes sense. That's fine. I know doctors and barristers and surgeons that yeah keep, keep their name. Well, she's already known. She's already known as Helen exactly. Zaltzman, which is fine. But like, she doesn't say the Zaltzman bit very loud. <laughs> it's kind of Helen Austrick <coughs> Zaltzman. What, what was that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I had a sort of similar... Me and my girlfriend aren't getting married now, but we flip-flopped for years and years. Oh, right. Okay. Like, every time we, we, we sort of tell everybody in the family, you know, we're getting married, and then we say, then we have to tell everybody that we're not, you know. It's ridiculous. I had a similar intention that if we did get married, yeah. I would combine our names. So my name's Pickering, which I don't like at all. So I'm, that's what oh, I quite okay. like to change it. And hers is Adamthwaite, as we talked off mic, actually. Oh, yeah, yeah. Adam and so I, I always thought that Pickerthwaite works quite well I think so it's kind of Dickensian that's a ridiculous surname yeah but that's we've already both with. got ridiculous surnames so we might as well you know well, up the ante yeah but I mean it, we're not getting mm. married now so it's not really an issue so the first question that I ask everybody when I did the conversation that I did with Helen and Ollie on Friday I said it's a strange one to, to do for people I don't know at all yeah but I'm insisting on keeping the format regardless <laughs> so the first right. question that I ask everybody is how do you know me uh, you got in contact with me in January to ask me to do a really interesting sounding night that I then forgot about and didn't reply to you. And <laughs> I felt really guilty about that. I've had an incredibly busy year because I've had, had a new job. And then you wrote to me again and asked if you if I'd come and do the podcast and I thought, yeah, that sounds fun. And I can, uh, it gives me the opportunity to apologise on air for not replying to your email well, about the year. That's really nice <laughs> of you to do. I mean, everybody misses emails. I mean, I'm quite... Um, as I was sort of saying to you, because I was a bit late to this to this conversation, and I felt guilty about that. And uh, you know, I'm a little bit too obsessive yeah. about like replying to emails and stuff. And I, yeah. I really have to kind of, I'm trying to, I'm trying to have more understanding that everybody gets so many emails yeah. to their inboxes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How can you reply to them all? It's impossible, really. Is this a clean podcast? No, it's not. It's, it's not, not clean. <laughs> um, I, th- I think people not apply- replying to emails like I didn't was is really fucking rude, and I really hate it. Hate it, so I do apologise. But honestly, the amount of email I've got since I started this new job has got like has just ballooned. Yeah, and then having the head like so if you spend like a significant portion of your day, as I do now, replying to emails that are kind of important emails that you have to reply yeah. to, they're about students or like departmental policy or something like this. To then find the headspace when you go home to sort of work out okay, that email is about this, and that means that on this day I need to do that and. My, like my, I just finding the headspace to, to organise yeah. these things, and actually, I just need to get, I just need to be better organised. Basically, <laughs> I thought I was reasonably well organised, but I was reasonably well organised for the amount of stuff I had to deal with, and now that's kind of kind of creeping up and up. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, I, mm. I, I like I say, I I'm obsessive about replying to emails, and, mm-hmm. and then uh, you know, there's been a couple of occasions where I've done the same thing that yeah. you, you sort of open yeah. it and you leave it, and then then I'm really annoyed because I'm like, I've spent all these years getting really annoyed with people not yeah. replying to me, and now yeah. I've done it. Now I've done it, and now I have to accept that I'm just like them. Like, well, I'm it's, like it's, it's, I see that there are two kinds of email, right? The ones that you reply to straight away, they're like, yes, yeah, six p.m. 
See you there. Yeah, and they're the ones where you go, okay, well, that means me to think about that a bit. Yeah. What does that, when would that be? And what does that fit in with what yeah. I'm doing? And do I need to get, you know. And you've got to check a few other things first. Uh, and you, and you want to have a think, think about it. Has Helen got me into do this thing? Can I, have I got time to do that new thing that I was at? And, you know, and you're kind of fitting it into the complex tapestry of your tedious existence. And, that, <laughs> and that's what's really hard, just to find a headspace to go, oh, yeah, that sounds really good. But I know that weekend I'm going to a wedding and I'm supposed to be writing a song for a thing that's, you know. Yeah, no. I'm, I mean, uh, like I say, I'm trying to. I'm trying to be more understanding since I've yeah, I've come to you. the same. <laughs> no, no, but I mean, you know, I think as as we go on in this kind of crazy new future that we're living in, you know, mm. it, it probably makes sense to be more forgiving about these things rather than to stick yeah. to it so much because it's just going to happen more and more. People and, email too much, though. Yeah, I mean, people, I, I, I write too long emails. That's my the thing I get criticised for is writing really, really long emails. I don't mind that. It's just. <laughs> it's more the organisational thing. Like yeah. if you work in a big organisation, like I work for university, like people just copy everybody into everything. Because you kind of go, okay, well here's the thing about something. This person probably it's not relevant to them, but if I leave them out of the loop, they might get a bit annoyed. Yeah. Or that, or, or, or two months later they might go, well, what happened there? Why didn't you, you know? And you, so you get all of these emails where you told about something like, I'm, not, I'm never going to go to that event. I'm never going to have an opinion or any useful input on that thing but I'm just copied in because they feel like you know I, they sh- they sh- I should be people are on the side of caution I, I work yeah, in, I work yeah, in yeah, a council yeah. and, and, and you can get in trouble if you don't copy people mm-hmm. in so I always try to copy yeah, every, every possible person in. yeah no and it gets ridiculous so um, I don't know someone was talking about this idea that you actually pay have to pay per, per CC so if you send an email <laughs> it's like, and the same thing with meeting I think it should do the same thing with meeting but like um you know, you pay you you first recipient is free, but every person you CC in is I don't know, pound or something. That's an interesting idea. I would I would end up owing a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> but there's other ways to do it. I mean like social media is really good. I don't think you could really use it in a work context, but social media is a really great way to just go, Well, here's some stuff I'm gonna put out there. Yeah. You don't have to pay attention to exactly. it. But if you are paying attention to it, then you can find out about it. Yeah, I lo- that's what I like about it's it. It's better actually. than a mailing list, you know. Yeah. Like a mailing list is putting someone on the, on the shoulder and going, Here's this thing, there's this thing. Like, I don't care, why did I sign up to this thing? Like social media is a completely you have to be an act, has to be an active process to be engaged with it. And that's, no, that's true. Oh god, I use the word engaged. <laughs> you know what I mean. What's wrong with the word engaged? Oh, it's one of those buzzwords. Yeah. Like in social media and especially in academic engagement, there's a big thing about like academics reaching out to people, you know, yeah. c- civilians in inverted commas. But yeah. basically, like people who pay our wages, like the public or different parts of the public. So we use all these buzzwords like engagement and conversation and synergy and, you know, all this kind of stuff. Yeah, it's I just, mean, I guess it is. I use it a lot without thinking about it for my work as well actually mm. so I'm, I'm you know I'm probably guilty of that myself the second question that I ask everybody is what do you do now oh wow right now well yeah interpret it however you like I'm a lecturer at where we are now at ACASA yeah. uh, which is part of UCL the University College of London and we're a bit of the architecture department well the Bartlett which is the faculty of architecture and planning and the built environment so the kind of people here come from architecture and planning and and that kind of background, but also there's a bunch of people like me. I'm a physicist. Yeah. So there's physicists, there's mathematicians, there's computer scientists, and they're all kind of getting involved in these sort of kind of cross-disciplinary activities that are to do with how mathematics and technology and computer science relate to a kind of social systems, really. Mainly the city, but other sorts of things as well. So it's a pretty broad umbrella. When people think of physicists, yeah. they always think of like theoretical physicists these yeah. days. Are you... That's uh, that's gone. It just does it occasionally. It's the sound of the air, air conditioning, air conditioning in, in mine's office. 
but they, they think of when they think of physicists, they mm. think of theoretical physicists these days. Yeah, That's kind of Brian everyone, Cox. Yeah, Brian characters. Cox. Yeah, yeah. Um, are you a the- theoretical physicist or you're a more practical <laughs> physicist? Or what, what, was it, what are the uh, definitions? I, I would say I'm quite an applied physicist. Applied I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not a very traditional physicist. I did an undergraduate physics degree. My PhD was in a traditional physics subject. It was in solid-state physics, which is the kind of physics that you do if you're interested in electronics, like the materials that go into electronics, but it's a more basic understanding of materials in terms of electrons mm. and and how they move through solids and things like that. And then I worked as a medical physicist for four years, but for the last two years, nearly, I've been doing this sort of work, which is, I call it social physics. It's not physics in the sense of you're looking at physical systems, it's physics in the sense that you're taking ideas from physics and you're using them to do the, this kind of stuff, cities, people, transport. Yeah. And there's a lot of buzzwords like complexity and chaos and things like that, which are very relevant to the sort of things that we do. But it's, a, it's quite a new field, I would say. It's probably been around for like about... 30 years tops. It's fascinating to me, as I said, I mean, I, you know, I've been looking on your website to, for research and I think yeah. what's, what's very interesting about, about all of the areas that you've been involved in is just mm. that it's not what people expect from someone who does physics. Yeah. And, I, and I think that's, that's really interesting. I mean, I've got you know, a, a very close friend who's a theoretical physicist. Oh, and, right. Well, and that's, that's, and that's really all smart. I really know. There's a few people that I talk to about all of these kind of crazy mm. ideas that are, you know, Close to, I don't know, philosophy or, uh, yeah, yeah, you know, as an artist, yeah. I love those ideas because mm, mm. they feel very arty. But where you're at, all of your areas have been quite practical in a way, I think. There's some truth in that, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I think, actually, I think in practice, very few areas of physics aren't practical in some extent because I think science is quite practical. I'm interested in the ideas. I think that's the most interesting part of physics. And actually, mm. any discipline is not the, how do we build a bigger tank? You know, it's like why do things do a certain thing at the speed of light? I mean, that's a more interesting question. Yeah. There's a certain class of people who want to build a better tank, and those people are called engineers. <laughs> not really, I don't, they're not really scientists. But like, there's a practical question. It's like, how do you create a theory which you can test? And that's, it sometimes gets lost in, in the communication of science. The cool thing about science, you know, in, is that, you know, in scare quotes, is Brian Cox, Albert Einstein, you know, Dawkins, yeah. Darwin, these geniuses. But they're unusual. Yeah. The reason we know about those people is that, you know, Mary Curie, if you want a lone female example, the reason we recognise these personalities as being brilliant is because they're really unusual. Most people are just interested in incremental knowledge, adding to knowledge incrementally. And that requires things like creating good theories that you can test. And that's quite practical. Yeah. Like one of the greatest theoretical physicists, I think, I don't think anyone would disagree with me, of the 20th century, Richard Feynman, is a massively practical person. And the fa- famously... Um, solved, well, or demonstrated at least, the, the cause of the Challenger disaster by dropping a rubber ring into a glass of iced water. Wow. And that explained why a particular seal had deformed, allowed gas to escape and caused the ignition of the gases which destroyed the shuttle. Wow. So he was, a, I mean, he was a very hands-on guy. He played the bongos as well. You know, I hear of, he's one of those names that you hear yeah. all the time, but I have not got around to sort of looking at in depth. Yeah. Well, good science has to have, has to have um, contact to, to, to reality. I mean, yeah. I, I think the ideas are in, are the interesting bit, but if you don't connect them to reality, they're just ideas. Like um, like the Greeks having all these ideas about the four humours um, and the human body. Yeah. These four humours supposedly ruled all our, all our health and temperament and all this kind of thing. But it was nonsense. And they just came up with a really nice theory that got quite complex and developed, but didn't really have any good contact to the reality of what the human body, how the human body actually works. Do you think that the furthest expanse of physics these days... Um, that deals with the furthest extent of the universe and these yeah. kind of the, 
the the really wacky, I guess, yeah. theories. Do you, do you think that, that some of them may prove to be like the humours, or do you think? I mean, I don't know. This is a kind so of challenging thing to say. That's, <laughs> that's, that's quite a reasonable point. I mean, the the thing is, like, so, I mean, I'm not really up on theoretical physics, but like super string theory, that was big when I was like an undergraduate, so yeah. like late nineties. Yeah. And now it's embr- membranes and things, but. I mean, let's say super strings, right? I think the challenge there is just to prove that they're internally consistent. And that's the first thing you have to do before you then go in and check whether it works, fits with the experiment. But the kind of energy scales they were talking about, you couldn't possibly test them. You know, they were saying, like, I mean, again, you know, they might, they might find ways to test them in the future, but yeah. the theories that they were propounding to differentiate between, you know, a dozen theories that were identical, but for one thing, you'd need a particle accelerator the size of the solar system. <laughs> Yeah, so it's like it's not, yeah, not going to be done. You can come up with these consistent while. theories, but what impact do they have unless you can test them? And there's a danger. Well, I don't think it's a danger that I don't think it's a problem in some sense. But you just have to recognise that when you can and can't test things, like science is testable. Yeah. That's like the definition of science, as far as I'm, I'm concerned. And you're testing to make sure to see whether you can break your theory. You're testing it as well as you can, and if and if it survives, then you're doing really well. Then it's a good theory. But superstring theory doesn't really do that, as far as I can tell, because it's too, it's like too small. <laughs> it's we, we can't get to that level of detail at this point. Yeah, I mean, that side of the stuff is so hard for me to even comprehend. Oh, I don't understand it. No, I mean, I, mean, I might get. I mean, I might get. I know somebody who who is is big into string theory. Who I hope to get on the show at some uh, point, okay, and, yeah. and maybe he can make some sense of it for me. But I I doubt it. I, it my, mm. It's a bit like when you have to deal with financial documents. My mind, <laughs> I find my mind is not in the right place to to comprehend it. But I, but but I'd like my mind just falls asleep. Yeah, that's the problem. Yeah, uh, unless it's my tax return, <clears throat> I have to do it once a year. I can stay away <laughs> to do that. But, yeah. Well, that's that's good. That's a, that's that's better than I am with financial documents. <laughs> the reason I guess that I kind of reached out to you to get you on the show is because one of the things I'm interested in doing with this, with the concept of this show, is to get better acquainted with people who also do podcasts. Okay. And so yeah, yeah. with people who I have a kind of preconceived idea of versus right. uh, the audio oh, media. Oh, so like I you guess. know me, but I don't know you. Yeah, I guess so. And that's and that's certainly something, I mean, most of them will only touch on the podcast briefly and then there's far more interesting things to talk about, as I think we've already <laughs> suggested. <laughs> you are a man of many podcasts. Yeah, I do dozens of the bloody things. So uh, the one that's best known is Answer Me This. Yeah. And you had Helen Ollie on the show uh, last episode. Yeah, I, I, I rec- I, well, I don't know if I'll put you out directly after. Oh, okay. I'll probably space it out a little bit. But yeah. they, they have already passed. Yeah, they've been out. In the past. In yeah, the, yeah. Yeah. They kind of do this weekly show and they and they are married to Helen, who's one of the hosts and Ollie's a friend of, of ours. And so five years ago, they said, we need to record this podcast, but we don't know how to record audio. Will you do it? And they went, yeah, okay. <laughs> and it kind of went from there. I started off being a same man, but it quite quickly turned into I was a sort of part of the show. Yeah. I didn't do all of the music, but I spent a lot of time working on jingles and music yeah. with, with other people for the show and, 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 and idents and things like that. So And on that show, you've always got a lot of reverb. Yeah. So yeah. It's, it is surprising to hear your voice without, without reverb. reverb. Yeah. Uh, although I have heard it on other podcasts, and so yeah. I, I did know that you were... Existed in a reverbless yeah, reverb existence. Yeah. yeah, well, I, so that, that was the first one. I started doing my own podcast um, not long after, actually, uh, which is a monthly podcast, which is for my it basically, I put out any song every month. Yeah. So yeah. it was partly as a discipline because I wasn't gigging that much at the time, and I'm not I'm not that much at the moment, but um, it was to have a discipline of what to write a song, write and record a song a month, which doesn't sound like a lot, but when you've got a day job and another podcast and other things, it's 
it's not that easy. No, I mean, I, I absolutely identify mm. with that. I mean, me and a friend of mine did a project where we had to record a song, write and record a song a month last yeah. year. We we did we got together and it was always had to be we had to write it, record it, yeah. and release it in a day because we are so time yeah time yeah, stretched. Yeah, yeah. You know, like that happens sometimes. I mean, the problem is I just spend a lot of time writing songs. I mean, I know people who write really quick. Like Darren Heyman did a record where he recorded like a song a day yeah he did um, January, January songs, songs I've yeah. actually recorded a conversation oh, with him okay. for the show actually. oh that's cool and yeah, he's I an interesting guy I mean he's got a really I mean I think the difference between me and him is he's got a lot more ideas <laughs> like he's literally like I've got all of these ideas in me get them down I think he's quite sympathetic to people like me who are a bit crap about writing but um, it just takes me a long time like I do a lot of gigs with a song like with Gavin Osborne yeah he's a really talented guy and he's a lovely man and um, like he can write a song between drugs and a cigarette He's so great. Wow. Um, I'm not like that at all. No, and he, some of his stuff is great. I mean, he's written some brilliant stuff. But I always say that he's like uh, the Dylan to my Cohen. <laughs> I take like a month on the song and he does it in like, you know, three seconds. But, you know, he's given us both a little bit more props than we deserve. <laughs> <laughs> I like the it's nice to do that though. I think we all songwriters sort of do that. Like I've, yeah. got, I've got relationships with friends where, where mm. we always, you know, you, you make yourself into which of the Beatles you are, don't you? Or, oh, that's cool. You know, yeah, those kind of things. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so that was the, that was my podcast. Um, then that's I, the Sound of the Ladies. The Sound of the Ladies podcast, yeah. So that's uh, every month. And I've been doing that pretty much non-stop for five years, nearly. Why no, do, four years. Why probably. do you call your musical persona the Sound of the Ladies? Oh, it's a really long story. It started as a joke. I was in a band at college when I was doing my PhD with DiVincenzo we were a two piece folk band and I started doing little silly things under the name The Ladies because I thought it was a stupid name Yeah, yeah. we kind of split up after we graduated and I wanted to start working on my own stuff so I thought I'd keep the name because I, li- I really like the conceit of a band which is just one person I love people that are called, you know, what's that guy, uh, like microphones or something and it's just a dude Yeah. I also really like the thing, the Foo Fighters first record being just Dave Grohl I think there's one guitar part on that first Foo Fighters record that wasn't him. Everything else, drums, guitar, vocals, it's all him. I got the website The Sound of the Ladies um, because The Ladies was, was taken. And then there was another band called The Ladies who had members from two slightly well-known bands. Okay. And I was like, yeah, I just can't be bothered. I'll just, I'll just change the name. So I don't know with The Sound of the Ladies. Like, some people think it's a really bad name. Like I know Ollie on the podcast, <laughs> he thinks people get put off by it because I think it's going to be a novelty band. And certainly, if you listen to Answer Me This, and you, you know, I, I basically, my job on Answer Me This is to swear. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> That's basically all To it. swear and answer the science question. Yeah, yeah, I talk about science and I, and I, and I, tell the presenters they're fucking idiots so that's basically it but um, <laughs> but that's not what my music is like my music is generally quite uh, weird and sad and, and conceptual uh, as well I mean yeah it can a... be quite yeah yeah. Uh, it's quite storytelling in places yeah. yeah I mean I did do like a trilogy of songs on my last album which is about a giant squid washing up on a beach and then these people like trying to cook it and then it's setting on fire and it killing them it's such a stupid idea, but I really liked it. Yeah, so it can get quite conceptual. But um, they're not stupid songs. Like, even no. though I like, described a really stupid scenario, they're quite... They're definitely serious songs. Yeah, they're quite yeah. sad in places. So um, he thinks people hear The Sound of the Ladies and think it's going to be like The Answer Me and This Jingles, and it's going to yeah. be novelty songs, which it, it's not. It's generally conceptual folk songs. So uh, I hope people... Yeah. I, I, I want to surprise people as well, actually. You just sort of got to go with what you, what you go with as well, yeah, with these yeah. sorts of things. It's like I do solo stuff sometimes as the Dave... Um, which is a joke, you know. It's, it, was, it started as a joke, but That's I don't do it. I don't really do funny songs. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it, yeah, yeah, you yeah, just yeah. get stuck in these. That's things. a really good name, though. No, I, I, like, like but I like the I like telling people ex- expectations. I like people going to see the sound of the ladies or going to check out their music and go, okay, well, it's not a band. It's not ladies. 
and it's quite actually got a stupid name, but it's quite heartfelt music. It's quite yeah. genuine. What's the word? Um, it's not ironic. I'm not singing no, the songs I no, want. That's right. They're, 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 they're meant to be quite authentic. Maybe. Authentic. Yeah, whatever the word is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I did another podcast for UCL, which was uh, the Bright Club podcast, which that's was right. based, on a, based on a series of um, uh, nights that uh, a guy at UCL called Steve Cross, who does. Uh, it's basically like uh, stand up for academics, yeah. not just scientists, all kinds of academics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We did a podcast based on that. I was basically engineering that. I was just the same guy on that. You were on the second episode. Yeah, I was actually. Yeah, yeah, this is when I was a laser physicist. And then more recently, I've done something which is slightly similar, which is based on my department, which is called Global Lab. That's right. Which is talking about our, our work, but it's more specific to the sort of work we do complexity and cities and. Uh, tech impact. It, it kind of the, the, the sort of, it's quite a broad umbrella because the department's quite broad. But the, the sort of tagline is something like um, "cities complexity and the influence of technology on people's lives." It's kind of like academic futurism or something like this. I don't know. But we get some great people on. We get some. I mean, a lot, a lot of people get on academics. Yeah. But we get some other people. No, I've heard it. I liked it. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's it's. It, I'm, again, I mean, my my mind doesn't always keep up with the with the information. Yeah. There, but that's that, that's not a bad thing. I can go back and well, work it out. The challenge with with that is to do something. Well, uh, challenge with it is to do something which is accessible. But yeah. I, I, there's sort of two axes, right? I mean, something being accessible doesn't mean it has to be broad. Yeah. So you that's right. You don't have to go like I'm going to do a podcast about science. Yeah, you know, if you want to, you can go. You know, actually, I've done some sessions on academic podcasting, some training sessions, and uh, one of the things I said, if you want to do a podcast about newts, you know, if you're a newt biologist, yeah, do it, but make it accessible, make it interesting for people. Yeah, equally well, you could do a really broad science podcast that would only scientists would understand because it was very technical. So I think the trick is do what you're interested in, but make it good and make it accessible. Yeah, I mean that's a really admirable objective to have. Mm. So are they, that's is that all? That's all of the many podcasts that we covered. Them, is that all of them. Yeah, I think so. Think so. Yeah, there's only four. Yeah, it feels like a lot. But no, it's well, it's a lot of work. I should imagine. Yeah, yeah, it's quite a lot of work. But I mean, the next thing on my list of things is it says science engagement, but we've just kind of crossed off the engagement part of the of, well, the, of the statement. I do other science engagement apart from podcasts. Yeah. So I do I do things like Bright Club. Yeah, and science show off, which are nights where I get up and either I talk about my work in a supposedly funny way, yeah. or I sing a song about science. So last year, last February, I released an album of songs about science, separate from the sound of the ladies. Yeah, I've been doing songs about science for about five years now. Basically, Robin Ince that used to do a night called the Book Club, which was a lot of comedians talking about books. It was often improvised and it was often very loose, and in in places it was really good. And that's some great people doing it. And I did a bit of incidental music for that. And then in about 2007, Robin said, do you want to start doing this, this new night I'm doing, which is like the book club, it's called the School for Gifted Children, and it's more of a science thing. Mm. So I would go along every two or three months when he did a gig with a new song about science. So I had one about uh, the invention of the printing press. I had one about this guy called Hippasus of Metapontum, who discovered irrational numbers, and, and there's this story that he was killed for discovering irrational numbers. Wow. Yeah, so rational numbers are numbers you can't write down as a fraction. Okay. So like most numbers, well, actually that's not true. Lots of numbers you can write as a fraction, you know, half or three quarters, whatever. Right. Like pi is an irrational number. Because it, it right, okay. If you wrote that as a fraction, it'd be infinitely long. Could, yeah. So you wouldn't benefit from it. Right. You wouldn't benefit from writing it as a fraction. Yeah, yeah. So it would be an infinite number of numbers over an infinite number of numbers. Right. So it's not, it's, it's not a finite fraction. So Pythagoreans were like, well, you know, the, the, the nature's really ordered. And so everything should be expressible as a whole number, and if you can't express it as a whole number, 
you have to be able to express it as a fraction of whole numbers. And Hippasus, this guy, um, proved that you couldn't. That there were numbers you couldn't express as a fraction. And in fact, and there's a thing, it's a thing called the golden ratio, which is in art quite a lot, I think. Yeah. So it's, a, it's an That's aspect right. ratio of what's really pleasing to the human eye, and it appears in all kinds of places. But he proved that you, you couldn't write it as a fraction. And it's probably not true, but there's a story that they threw him off a boat. <laughs> that he found out uh, while he was at sea, and they threw him off the boat and drowned him. Which is probably not true, but it's quite a good idea for a song. So it's I a nice that. idea. Yeah. I thought that was the first one I did in 2007. So I did a bunch of these songs, and there's all kinds of different subjects, and you can, you know, if you want to check, check them out, there's a free download of the album. Uh, and I put it out last year. Uh, yeah. I'm still writing them occasionally. Science engagement, it seems to me to be one of the sort of main passions, I guess, of, of what you do. Would you say that's right? Is that yeah. fair? Yeah, I think so. I think there's a lot of problems with science engagement. I think it's quite hard, not necessarily in the ways that people would think. So, like, I think a lot of people are really interested in science. I think Brian Cox has demonstrated that. Yeah. It's difficult to put it into music without it just being like, oh, and I rhyme something with quark. Yeah. And I... That's fine. I do songs like like that, which are like you know. I've got a song called Luminiferous Ether, which is something that someone who hasn't studied physics will never know about. It's this ridiculous Victorian theory of um, uh, of light, basically, and that's kind of funny because it's like all of this technical information in the song, and yeah. then, you know, that, that's quite a funny device. But then you always run the risk they might be giants had to rewrite the one about the sun. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They yeah. got the, the information. The sun is a massive incandescent yeah. gas, and then. They re-released it as the sun is a miasma of incandescent plasma. That's yeah, right. That was really cool. I really like that moment, giants. No, but the danger is just more that it's a novelty. Like yeah. it's just the novelty of going, "Hey, I put a clever word in a song, and it scans, or I've rhymed something with quark or luminiferous," and you kind of go, "Yeah, and so what?" Yeah, it's not that hard to rhyme. No, you know, like you know, like I don't understand like someone like Neil Hannon's career, which seems to be based on people going, "Wow, he's rhymed things like." So what? You know, it's just because people like Oasis don't know how to run. Anyway, um, uh, it's not that hard, and it's difficult to, to be interesting in a science song without just doing that. So I think it's actually quite hard artistically to do something interesting with it, which isn't just I'm going to put a load of facts in a song. So I find that quite a challenge. And the other challenge is the current thinking about science engagement is it should be a lot more two way. And most of what I do is really one way. Right. Okay. Like it should be about conversations really. And most of what I do is. Have a song, have a podcast, listen to this, you know, and that's, I'm proud of the stuff that I've done, but it doesn't kind of go that extra step to actually get people involved in the conversation. I'm not trying to do that. That's a bit hard. Because in Answer Me This, you have lots of people calling in and writing emails in it. I mean, I guess you could, you could try a similar model. You could do that. But then it's it's harder than you think. There's a lot of admin involved in that. Well, there's (laughs) not, no, it's not, it's, it's a reasonable point. So on the global lab, we do ask people to write in. They don't write in quite the numbers that we would like them to. You've got to think about it being a slice of a slice. Like with Answer Me This, although it's an independent podcast and it doesn't have any kind of backing from you know, the BBC or whatever, yeah. like you would if you did it professionally, uh, it's a pretty broad remit. Yeah. You know, the remit is like, yeah, we're answering questions. We're going to be funny. And that's something that people go, okay, I could get on board with that. If on the other hand you're going, I'm doing a science podcast. It's about cities and complexity write in and ask a question that's that suddenly you've like you're slicing down your audience who and and if you think about of the people that listen only a small fraction are going to engage Respond, and write in yeah like, with answer me this that's true as well yeah like we've got tens of thousands of listeners and um i don't know what the numbers are in terms of people sending questions but it's hundreds yeah absolutely well it, that's always they always say that don't they? i mean it's the same online isn't it yeah if, they, if, they, if you get one letter it represents 100 people or something isn't yeah it? something like that 
Well, same thing on the comments board, yeah, isn't it? That's, uh, yeah, absolutely. The hundred lurkers and one person, you that's know, right. flaming and trolling and being general canning. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. That's what I always console myself with that when I don't get very many comments on things. I'm like, yeah, but there's loads of people. But, uh, yeah, not, yeah, yeah, that's not, right. They're yeah, just yeah. not visible. What you consider yourself to be doing now is yeah. sociable physics. Yeah. Uh, would you want to expand on, on that a little bit? What is, sure. what, what is sociable physics? I would call it social physics. Social physics. Yeah, I mean, my website and my Twitter name is sociable physics. it's nice. Because yeah. I couldn't get social physics. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it sounds quite good. On yeah. Twitter it makes a lot of sense exactly. as well. Social physics, its roots come from the 1840s. The guy that invented sociology, one of the people that invented sociology, uh, I think his name was Adolf Quattelet, started to look at data from governments about I think it was ages or something like that I don't it's like kind of birth deaths and marriages that sort of thing mm-hmm. very crude data that, that he could get his hands on and he started to analyze it with tools from astronomy and the techniques he now he used we would now call statistics so he did all this analysis he called it social physics and he wrote some stuff on it another guy independently did some social some work and called it social physics and Quattle was really annoyed with that and he, and he said well I'm not going to use social physics if the other, this other guy is using it I'm going to call it sociology so actually the roots of taking a bit of physics, in that case astronomy, and pulling it into social science, trying to understand social data, goes back to the 1830s. It's not a very popular term. It's been used over the last 150 years on and off. But it's basically that. It's taking bits of methods, like mathematical methods, modelling methods, programming methods, from physics and mathematics, really, and dragging them into social sciences and see if you can do something useful with them. So what are the useful things that you could do with them? Um, oh, there's tons of stuff. I mean, statistical analysis is one. I mean, there's a whole class of sort of, um, like, kind of spatial models is one of the th- is a big thing in this group. So looking at spatial distributions of, I mean, it could be anything. Like, it could be access to higher education. It could be the way people move to work based on where they live. And you can kind of try and create mathematical models of these things. Um, the thing I've been working on is um, hire bikes. London hire bikes. So, like the Boris bike thing? Yeah, I didn't try, I try not to call them Boris Bar- bikes. They're, well, they're supposed to be called Barclays bikes, aren't they? Yeah, that, that's, that's yeah. also branding. That's the sponsor, yeah. <laughs> Ken Bikes, some people call them, because yeah. apparently he's, he actually started the, the, the plans for the scheme before Boris came. Yeah, that's what I've heard too, but there's but a lot of people like to shout on both sides of that, so I never I never, I never say what, what yeah. Yeah, you, I, I, you're I, probably right to just call them hire bikes. I like to use the phrase London bike share scheme just to keep it neutral, <laughs> but uh, I mean, Barclays do sponsor them, so I should probably call it that a bit more often. Well, there's a bunch of data about journeys of Boris bike, of, of high bikes. Let's call them Boris bikes, it doesn't matter. And I've been trying to look at these, if you think about these journeys across the city as kind of representing a web of travel, where yeah. people are going, you can start to um, analyse that basically. Uh, and you can do really simple stuff like you can see where the most popular locations are, what the most popular routes are, how that varies at the time of day, whether it's a weekday or a weekday, weekend. I haven't done this, but you could also do it over the course of a year, see how the weather changes those patterns. Okay, yeah. Um, so you could do you can do some real analysis on this stuff. Um, I've done some visualizations that I'm really pleased with with uh, Ollie O'Brien, who's, who's in the office. Basically, if you imagine you've got a start and an end point for each of these journeys, we've got all this data set saying where they started, where they ended, and when they started and ended. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't know where they went, but you can make a, a reasonable guess. And he's done some route finding, saying you start here and you end here. What's the best route? Okay. And there's software to do that. So you can create a visualisation which shows kind of, it's not where the bikes went, but it's a good guess about where the bikes went. And you can plot that over the course of a day and see where all the bikes are at any particular point in time. 
with this proviso that it's a kind of a bit of guesswork. Yeah. So that's quite a nice thing to do. And and then you can get into the analysis and you can and do the things I'm talking about, like look at the popular routes and basically try and understand this web of transport flows that extends across the city. I think it's really interesting. You can start to try and think about whether there's particular clusters, whether there are particular parts of the city that are kind of enclosed. So you might see that there's like a sub-network within this bigger network where people are kind of moving around but they're not really leaving that area so much. Okay. The obvious thing is the east-west split. And if you know London, there's a big split between kind of west London, like Hyde Park and around there. Yeah. And then this much bigger flow which goes from sort of King's Cross and Waterloo into the city and back. Okay. Which is the big commuter route, basically. So you can do that kind of thing. And um, I'm not sure where it's going to go. I mean, the other thing you can do is correlate it with the other data. Like, you can correlate it with information about deprivation and, and welfare or pollution, this kind of slightly more so- serious social issues. So initially, it was a way for to learn some of the, the ropes of visualising and analysing the data, but it's possible that there's more in it in terms of connecting it to something a bit more weighty. Yeah. So I know, we'll see. That is advanced spatial dynamics, then, is it? Yeah. Before you came... To this office, yeah. you did medical physics. Is that yeah. the right way of saying it? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Medical laser physics. Yeah, that's right. It's always cool when people use lasers. Yeah, people still get really excited about lasers. <laughs> it's so funny. There's a show called Naked Scientists, which is like a Cambridge-based BBC. Yeah, thing. I, I know it. Yeah. Um, and they got me on to talk about. Someone asked a question about like um, use of lasers in movies, you know, like Goldfinger and the Death Star and yeah, those yeah. kind of things. So I did a bit of bit of. Or chat to them about how the, how these different technologies would work. I think I think I, 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 my conclusion was that like engulfing it is getting chopped in half with a laser. It's a red laser, a very powerful red laser. A red laser isn't absorbed very much by tissue because hemoglobin, which is the main pigment in your skin, yeah, and in your blood, yeah, uh, and in, in your tissue by by extension, is red. So in other words, it transmits red. It absorbs blue and green. Okay. So a red laser would predominantly pass through your skin. So you need a green laser or something well, like that? Yeah, a red laser, if it's powerful enough, it will deposit enough energy to cut James Bond into. Right. But a blue, la- <laughs> blue la- a blue laser or a green laser would be much more efficient. Right. Okay. Yeah. I'm trying, trying to think for. how that works in terms of lightsabers then. Uh, oh yeah, lightsabers are quite difficult. I don't know if I you I don't think they're lasers, I don't think so. Oh, they may be. Oh, they must be, mustn't I guess. I guess so. Yeah. yeah. I've, well, puzzled long- I've had a lot of arguments about lightsabers. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they could work. Because um, you need a mirror, basically. What, to stop, to, to stop, to stop it from yeah. carrying on for just, yeah forever ever. yeah I don't know how you could do that that's pretty pretty difficult. yeah because yeah you couldn't have it because yeah, there's no there's no casing is there no 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 so, it's yeah. just air well unless there's a, like a tiny mirror that the Jedi's can hold in place with the force or something I yeah I, I guess that is how it would have to work so you used lasers in medicine though yeah um, yeah. it was it's breast cancer wasn't it or was it well so I did a mix of stuff. Um, yeah. Half of my work was lasers. Half of my work was white light. Right. The lasers were for treatment. The white light was for detection. The white light stuff for detection was for detecting changes in tissue that would lead to cancer in the esophagus and secondary cancers for breast cancer. So uh, the idea was that a patient has an operation to remove a, a tumor, but the first place that cancer will spread is to the lymph nodes under the armpits. And what a surgeon will do is they'll, they'll look at those lymph nodes during the the operation and they'll try and check immediately whether those lymph nodes have cancer in them. And if they do, then they'll have to go on and do some more operations, basically. Okay. And if they don't, then that's good news, and they, the treatment changes. So it affects the immediate treatment, but also the, the course of treatment that the patient will have. And being able to do that in real time 
stops the patient having to come back for a second operation, this kind of thing. So we were trying to develop an optical method for doing that. It's quite it's quite hard. So that was one set of techniques. On the other side, I was doing laser stuff and laser laser treatments for cancer. There's quite a lot of them. I was doing stuff in prostate, uh, the pancreas, and a couple in the lung. I can't remember. I did so many of them. Most of them were the prostate. And it was quite an interesting technique, actually. It didn't like you were talking about the, the Goldfinger laser. Yeah. It wasn't like a, a thermal laser. It wasn't for cutting out cancer. You injected this drug, or you gave the patient this drug, which was inert until you exposed it to light. And when you exposed it to light, it caused a chemical reaction which damaged the tissue around it, which is really good for like a tumor. What you could do is you could give the patient this drug all the way through their body. Just you know, give it in a inject it or give it yeah. in a cup or whatever. It would go throughout their body. They stay in the dark so they don't get any skin burn. And then when you wanted to do the operation, you just shone the laser on the particular bit of tissue where the tumour was, and it would damage, kill off all the cells in that area, and it would leave all of the collagen, which gives it its form, intact. Okay. So that would mean you don't get a big scar, you don't get a lot of tissue damage. Like a lot of operations for removing a tumour can be yeah, quite, quite serious. Yeah, things. absolutely. So this is a way of killing off the cells without killing off the, the structure, the kind of scaffolding okay, around it. So, um, yeah, it was really good. Some of the treatments were really effective, I think. It's hard for me to judge because I'm not a medical doctor. But, um, so what, yeah. was, what were you doing in that, in that situation? Well, I, I was basically setting up lasers. So you, you were, you were, so you, but you, were, you weren't doing any injections or whatever? There no, no, medical no, team no, no, no. I mean, I'm not trained for that. Exactly, yeah. Um, so I would go into the operating theatre, let's say, and I'd set up a laser. I'd plug in the fibre or calibrate the fibre to make sure that it was given the right amount of power that we expected it. And, you know, the surgeon will put some, some clear needles into the patient in the appropriate part of the body. And then I would feed the fibres into the needles, so it would treat the prostate or whatever bit of the body we're treating. Turn the laser on, wait for however long, 20 minutes, usually turn it off again, pack it up and go home. Right. It's a job that a technician could do. It's yeah. not like I was using a lot of physics knowledge to do that. All the treatment plans are in place. You have to be really careful about that. You can't make it up on the fly, so there's really strict yeah. Yeah. rules about how long you treat them for, what power laser you use, how much drug you use, where you put the fibres. All that stuff was planned out by somebody else. So I just turned up and got the laser ready and, and did it. So, so why, why, were you, why were you doing it and not just, a, like as you say, a technician? Um, that's a good question, actually. I mean, in some cases, people... Just I, we just train people up to do it. So there were surgeons that knew how to operate the stuff and would just do it themselves. And there were places where I went and trained nurses up to do it, and they were good at it. Yeah. You know, they were fine at it. I mean, there's two things. First of all, some places I shouldn't really say this, but some hospitals just aren't that organised. And you're like, if I tell you how to do this, you're going to get it wrong. So I'd better carry on coming and doing it. Okay. It's one of those things like a nurse can do most operations, but it's when something goes wrong. Like the doctor's knowledge of anatomy and the, their extra years of training comes in and they go, okay, well, this has started to happen, so I need to do this. To right. So, uh, you know, it was equivalent for me. If the laser started screwing up, I knew what I could do and what I couldn't do. And a lot of the time I couldn't do very much. But if the laser just kind of pinged out and went, you know, off or there was a problem with the fibre, yeah. I knew what to to do in response. And just having a bit more experience and knowledge helped. Yeah, right, well, so. I, can, I can see that. I can understand, yeah, I, mean, I can see why that would matter, especially as it's mm. early days for these treatments, isn't it? So well, they've been going for a few years, but, um, yeah, <clears> I don't know, it's difficult. There's a surprising amount of economics in healthcare. There was a laser treatment for the esophagus that, over the four years I was there, basically died a death because there was a new technique that came in that we used called radioablative therapy that basically used, like, an electrical element that passed a current very, very quickly and and burnt the surface of the esophagus and killed the, the, the cells on the surface of the esophagus at a very, very superficial level. So it would kill 
a thin layer of cells that you thought were going to develop into cancer. Okay. It's a very effective treatment. I mean, I haven't followed the literature, so you know, two years later, maybe it's not so effective. Yeah. It seemed like it, was, it seemed like a really good technique, technique, and that was because of its cheapness and its ease of use was taking over from the laser treatment that we were doing for the esophagus specifically. So, yeah, there's so many factors that go into it. It's not just how, how likely it is it to work. It's also how difficult is it to use, how expensive it is. And, you know, the NHS has to think about that stuff as well. Yeah. So, yeah, it was interesting. I mean, I learned a lot about healthcare. I went, f- like, for my first week, I remember going into an endoscopy suite and just being like, oh, my God, I haven't seen anything this... They're gross. Ever <laughs> someone having like an endoscope shoved down the throat is not a pretty sight. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess it's it's it is very kind of direct and human, kind of like rather yeah, than theory. Yeah. It's not it's not theory anymore. When yeah, yeah, you're in yeah, that yeah, room. Yeah. Oh no, no, it was totally different from what I'd done before. It was amazing, really. I saw like a because I was in theatre for the breast work. I saw a reconstructive surgery, a breast reconstructive surgery. It's the most incredible thing I've ever seen. Because I don't know if you know this, but for for um, certain kinds of breast reconstruction, they take muscles from the shoulder, your shoulder blade. Because apparently there's a lot of different muscles they don't need. You've got a lot of extra ones, okay. and they kind of shove them around the front, and they use that tissue to to make a replacement breast. Wow! And just seeing this happen, like they're kind of reaching into this this person and shoving the moving it round. I mean, it's just incredible. Yeah. Like, I've never seen anything like that. Like the, yeah, really, really interesting. And all the people around me, they're people who are doctors. They've been doing practicing medicine and surgery for 10 years. Yeah, something. they're used to it. They've gradually built up the fact. Whereas I, I went straight into theatre and I was just like, what is going on here? Wow. I can see blood. I'm not very happy about this. <laughs> <laughs> and after about a, a couple of months of doing that, I was like, I'm really curious. What's going on in there? And like, you know, kind of peering over and seeing what was happening. It's really, really fascinating. So it's, an, it's a unique privilege, really, to see that perspective to see what happens in theatre and in surgery it's, it's fascinating yeah. it made me feel a lot more comfortable I think about hospital like because like, you realise that surgeons but they're bright people by and large they're not geniuses like they're not Einsteins they're smart people but they they have a lot of skill yeah. it's like being uh, yeah, they probably wouldn't thank me for saying this but it's like being a carpenter it's like being a really assured capable carpenter yeah. they just know what they're doing each time and, and they do you know ten of these maybe not that many they do five of these operations a day yeah you know and so they just have this you know they just know what they're doing yeah and that's really what you want <laughs> yeah definitely I definitely want somebody who is like a crafts person yeah yeah, 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 yeah absolutely yeah. they're well. very they're very capable people they're, and they're all smart but like I say it's not a intellectual being a surgeon isn't really an intellectual pursuit it's very it's, it's one where you have to be very capable but you don't have to be gifted if you see what I mean and no, they're, yeah, they're all gifted have to have, like, I mean you have to have a, a amazing kind of coordination abilities that I can only marvel at you know? uh, I don't know I mean not the stuff I was saying the, the general sur- it depends like yeah. head, head, head and neck surgery I work with some head and neck surgeons heart surgery probably mm, yeah yeah mm. brain surgery well, yeah, brain, I, I, knew, brain. I, I, I did know a brain surgeon and they said it wasn't that hard but, <laughs> uh, yeah like breast surgery isn't that difficult it's quite hard to get it wrong um, in terms of in terms of causing direct harm to the patient, it's quite hard to get it wrong. Like there aren't that many arteries that you can kind of snip through. Whereas if you're doing something on the neck, you've got to be really careful. There's nerves, there's arteries, there's veins. Right. Like you can kill someone or paralyze them. Yeah. So yeah, you really need to know what you're doing. But um, yeah, some of this other stuff, like they were just like, yeah, it's not that difficult. So, <laughs> but these are people that have been doing it for yeah, ten years. You've gone, but, from, <laughs> you've gone from reassuring me to making me nervous. <laughs> but no, I, I mean, you know, that's that's healthy to to have, to have both feelings about surgeons 
I mean, I you're, wouldn't you're go right. Behind. I mean, it made me like really. I'd never have cosmetic surgery anyway, but it made me really like, why do people have cosmetic surgery? Yeah. Having seen, you know, what people go through, it's 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 a serious thing. Just to be put under general anaesthetic is a serious thing, you know. And you know they do extremely good jobs, but I would not do that unless I absolutely had to. Yeah, sure. It's just, yeah. I mean, I don't do it. <laughs> no, abs- well, I, I don't. You know, there's, there's, there are there are many problems with uh, cosmetic surgery. I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. which is, I mean, I think that the problem is that people, when 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 you sort of say that you don't agree with cosmetic mm. surgery, there's like a few people out there who have kind of reasonable cosmetic surgery yeah, yeah, who are yeah, kind yeah. of getting tarred with the same brush. But I mean, apart from that, it's know, just well, it's a continuum, isn't it? It's, I think it's like yeah. when it's a, when it's purely aesthetic. Then it's much harder to justify them when uh, there's. But then it depends. I, I knew someone at school who had like a massive birthmark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if I you've got like a totally understand that, why she did that. Yeah. I think that's okay. No, I mean, I think it's in some way it's in pers- it's up to personal taste. A friend of mine that I worked with uh, in this job was telling me about someone who had like surgery on their eyelid because yeah. their eyelid was a bit asymmetric and they were self-conscious about it. So I had this surgery on their eyelid. It cost them five grand, and they were so self-conscious about the surgery they had. They wore sh- sunglasses for ages. And I just like you just kind of go five thousand pounds to spare, and you really can't think of something better to do with it. Like give it to charity, yeah. you know, give it, do something useful with it. Don't fuck about with your face. It's a real waste of money. Now I shouldn't be so judgmental. I mean, I know people. It's tricky, isn't it? I spend on a therapist. Like if you're just that crazy, <laughs> and you think your eyelid needs fixing, go to a therapist because that will have more long-term positive impact than fucking about with your face. I, I entirely agree with you on on, on that one. I, I didn't didn't agree with you on Neil Hannon, but I agree with you. <laughs> you specialised in lasers. Then I guess when you were when you were studying, no, no, not at all, not at all. I didn't study lasers beyond my third year undergrad. So I did all the. It was there was a bit about lasers on the core course. You could do it. There was a laser option in the fourth year, but I didn't do it. I did solid state physics and theoretical physics. Okay. Did you meet Helen at Oxford as well? Yeah, I was. I was doing my PhD, and she was finishing undergrad. Okay. So and, and you, but you, you came originally from Birmingham, didn't you? Well, I was born in Birmingham. Yeah. But I grew up in a place called Telford, which is. Oh right. Okay. Uh, it's, it's kind of a, if you draw a straight line between Birmingham and Wales, it's pretty much in the middle of the two. Yeah, I think I'm. I think I know. I lived in Coventry from the age of oh. uh, eight till the age of eleven. So. <laughs> My dad's from Coventry. Is he? Yeah, so I'm allowed to slag it off. It's a dump. Well, that's it's it's, it's <laughs> good to say. Well, I don't know. I always slagged it off, but uh, I've now come to the conclusion that possibly. I shouldn't blame the city for my life during that time. It's not as you know. I don't know. But, but I've got a friend who still lives in Coventry who thinks I'm very unfair to Coventry. So I'm trying well, to. I'm trying to. I'm trying to change my view on it. But uh, I have. It pretty, is hard. I have a bit of a dramatic view of Coventry because when I went used to go there, it was to visit my grand, and she lived in a really shit bit of Coventry. Where she live? Oh, I think it's called um, Stoke Oldham. My dad lived in Stoke Oldham. Really? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. It's not a great. It's area. horrible. Yeah. It's, I okay. mean, you know, his windows were smashed all the time, you know. But well, my but grandma, her, like, her, the flat next to her was borrowed by police to stake out the drug dealers opposite. You know, it's kind of, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a rough... Estate. I mean, there was... Like, I never had any trouble there, but I only was there for, like, a, a day or whatever, you know. Yeah, it's, it's a bleak, it's a bleak area. I went yeah. back to there, I mean, because part of this show, I went back to, to Coventry and talked to some people who I know from Coventry and went round Coventry and sort of yeah, yeah, yeah. went back to Stoke Aldermore and you know it's not a nice it isn't place. nice but I mean just you know it's like anywhere isn't it you can have nice experiences well, there and you can have like, I, like my dad's house yeah. was a kind of oasis yeah within yeah. it you know but, but well I, th- yeah. I, I don't know I mean it's probably a bit simplistic but Coventry seems to have been f- fucked since 
the Luftwaffe yeah. flattened it. Yeah. And you got all of I mean, like, Sir Coldemore is full of. What period is it? 50s? I think. It's not high rise, but it's, 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 it's that kind of. It's a council block. I, well, it's I kind of, I kind of realised when I was there. It, it's kind of cursed because it, when when it was flattened, they went, yeah. "Let's make this the city of the future," and that's yeah. always a bit you of a mistake because because it actually that dates really horribly a lot I of think that that's architecture. True, I, no, I think there's an element of that, but I also think there's just an element of oh, there's lots of people without any homes. We need to put some stuff up quick and do it quick. And they cut yeah, corners. I don't, I, I don't know the yeah, that's really true. I think it's a. Re- I think that's a, the history of social housing in the UK is really interesting I don't know that much about it but I was reading about I can't remember what it was it was talking about Birmingham and um, how like essentially they started out building like semi-detached houses with a little garden and some shared space like a little green and this kind of thing and as the decade wore on they were like okay this isn't going to work we need to build more and cheaper it's difficult I think Coventry's never completely recovered having said that I did do some gigs a few years ago where there seemed to be a lot of people from Coventry who said it had a really good folk movement yeah people I think there has been there's been there has been music that's come out I mean the specials yeah. and stuff like that can... specials are, yeah, well, they're, they're a really good band yeah 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 we, there's, there's one way something we can agree with, yeah. <laughs> but I mean so you identify as a Midlander or something like that I, I, don't bit, know what, what I, feel bit, I feel a bit hypocritical doing that because I clearly don't have a Midlands accent I mean it comes out a bit sometimes it's, not, it's, not, it's probably if you went to the Midlands they wouldn't think you had no, but, no, but, no, no. but if you're not from the Midlands they probably you spot it, you spot it I think. well the thing is I went to a grammar school in Shropshire where they didn't really have West Midlands accents. They have the Shropshire accent. I don't know what the Shropshire accent sounds like to this day. It's weird. <laughs> it's one of those ones like Stoke that you can't really identify. Place it. Yeah. I mean, Stoke is like, it's a bit Mancunian, but you can't really respond. So I landlocked to get my accent a bit. And then when I moved south, when I moved to Oxford, I was like, I don't want people to take piss at me because I'm from the Midlands. Yeah. So I started southernising all my vowels, and you can still hear it a little bit. So then. I mean, that completely obliterated my accent. Occasionally I'll say bus or something, you know, and people go, oh. I, I, I was talking to someone about this uh, in one of my first well, first job I was in London, and they were like, oh, where are you from, Birmingham? And they accused me of being a public school brummy. It's like, no, I went to a grammar school, damn it! <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but it's, uh, it's interesting. People make a lot of assumptions about me. I've had people having a go at me on Twitter, not very often, because they know I went to Oxford, and uh, obviously Helen all did as well. They make assumptions about what that means it's like you don't really know that much about me no it's a complicated thing isn't it I mean I did I talked to Helen and Ollie a little bit about the Oxford thing yeah because well, I went to public school well yeah <laughs> yeah I mean <laughs> I mean well, well I mean because I mean I, I when I was at school I, I was my English teacher wanted me to apply to Oxford but I was yeah I was kind of um you know, I decided not to because yeah. I thought I would be ideologically opposed to it. Now, now I look back and I sometimes think, you know, would have been pretty sensible the things I want to do with my life. It would have actually been quite sensible to try and, and get into Oxford instead of deciding. Like in my arrogance, then I was like, yeah. I'll definitely, I'll definitely get in, but I don't, but I don't uh, want that. That's interesting. Know, that was I my. That was my. No, I, was like, would, I don't think I'll get in. <laughs> well, I probably, I probably wouldn't have got in with that mentality. I, I don't know. Maybe. No, it helps in interviews. To yeah, be I guess it does. Really I, I wasn't. Yeah, but I wasn't well, confident. Like, I was insecure. You know what I mean? Uh, like yeah, one of them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that kind of overcompensating. Yeah, for sure. But I mean, but it's it has been a kind of weird sort of process in that when I went to university, I met people from grammar schools, yeah. and then I and then I yeah. met people, and then I've, I've sort of subsequently met people who went to public schools, yeah. and who went to Cambridge, and all of these things, and mm. and you know, that, like one of the things I've discovered on this show, or not discovered on this show, mm. I had discovered before I started doing this show, yeah. but is that you know, 
if you go to a comprehensive school, mm. your instinct is to think you can't get on with those people. Yeah. And actually yeah, you can, okay. and actually everybody's people, and it's actually, you know, there are nice people from everywhere. And, you know, when yeah. there are, there are, you know, I know people who went to, my, my, my friend's brother from school went to Oxford, yeah. and he lived, and, and they're from a really working class yeah, family yeah, yeah. in Cardiff, you know, in, in, the, in a really hard, Mm. council estate you know yeah. so preconceptions of people who've been to Oxford and Cambridge are very well, very it's difficult. strange it's, but it's difficult I mean in part yeah you're right you shouldn't get too pissy at people because they went to public school it's not entirely their choice but on the other hand like they've got so many bloody advantages yeah. someone that I that I know through Bright Club was saying that you know if someone does something impressive in their 20s let's say and then they go oh yeah but I was you know I was on a trust fund or you know, I had some well-paid work because I could get a bit of work at daddy's company. You know, don't be impressed. Like, most people have to work for a bloody living. And if in on top of that, they do... They manage to do something. They yeah. do some, you know, they do the short film or the album or, you know, start a charity or whatever it is. That's impressive. Yeah. But having the luxury to do what you want and then do something useful with your time... That's a baseline, right? Yeah, no, you're right. You're absolutely <laughs> I mean, right. If you if you if you've got that opportunity, and you fuck about it and waste your life and just you know don't do anything useful with it, then you're an idiot. Yeah, no, I mean I agree <laughs> um, with that. Um, well, it's it's also it's a funny thing because I mean it, it, the people I like who have those kind of um, backgrounds, let's yeah. say, are all people like everybody that I've had on this show, for example, uh, who I've talked to about this sort of area. Mm. They agree that it's unfair. Yeah, yeah. And I yeah. think that's kind of the that's kind of the the thing. Like it, somebody who's maybe been to Oxford and Cambridge or yeah. in public school who thinks that they have a right to oh, yeah, that yeah, they're yeah, the people yeah. that, that 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 are the problem. People who say, mm. you know, it's I agree, it's unfair. You know, somebody who says, yeah, I did have the luxury and I acknowledge that, and I, you know, that makes them a decent person, but I don't think that's enough. I think things have to, no, seriously, no, I agree. I with think it. things have to change. Like, I do I, think that. I mean, yeah. just just I'll just pick up one point for a current. Like, I think Oxford going to Oxford has opened a lot of doors for me. Yeah. I got first in physics from Oxford. That impresses a lot of people. Yeah, and that has given me so many opportunities, yeah. and that's great. But I didn't go to public school. I went to a grammar school, and my parents aren't posh. They're middle class. And and you know it annoys me that that the word the phrase middle class is elided with, oh that means your parents are well, they live in Hampstead and they, and they work for the BBC. No, that doesn't mean like most of the people yeah. in Britain. My are, parents are middle class. Yeah, yeah. like middle- I lived in you know not no yeah not posh areas but yeah. not 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 really rough areas either. But you know the, the middle areas exactly. Yeah, it's yeah. it's like most people have forgotten that the lower middle classes exist. Yeah, right? well that's <laughs> indeed. You know, and the, anyway, but um, that said. Uh, it's it's a pro- it's a major problem. It's like it's it's such an effective way of wealth transferring itself through generations. It really is like mm-hmm. that inheritance. The two ways that people who are on top stay on top by sending their kids to the poshest schools. They get to the poshest universities and they get the poshest jobs because the big finance companies recruit from Oxbridge and then the red red bricks. Yeah, know, it's it's fucked. And and it's a problem for Oxford and Cambridge because they they need to broaden access. The government is saying things like, "Well, you can't charge non-grant tuition fees unless you broaden access." Well, how can you? How can they do that? They're playing against a stacked deck. Yeah. You know, the best students they're getting are from public schools because 
They've got the resources to educate the shit out of those little yeah. bastards. They're better educated, <laughs> and also I think that they're better. They're, they're more confident. Yeah, and that's the thing. They 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 don't worry about failing because a, a failure for them means that they'll just move on to something else that they can succeed at. And that's not the case for most people. Like failure really hits people hard. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, you know, no, I if, agree. If I got sacked from, and, you know, I'm not going to do anything appropriate, but if I got sacked from this job, that would be a big deal. That would really fuck up my career. But for these people, they just go to, you know, go to daddy's firm and, and so, yeah, again, talk to their mates. Exactly. And, I mean, that's a, st- that's a massive caricature, but that, but what the, the spirit of that is true. I mean, I, no, and I agree with you, and I think, you, you know, you're right, it needs to change. I think that the, the, the thing that I've learned, I guess, from being a very angry kind of class conscious <laughs> teenager to now yeah, is yeah. that that yeah the system probably does have to change the structure yeah, yeah, of the yeah, way yeah. things are does have to change but that doesn't mean that the individuals within it yeah you know yeah, that's yeah, the thing yeah, it's like yeah, yeah that does of and that's course. what that's what I'm that's mm. what I'm saying so like when I talk to my friend who went to grammar school but is quite posh yeah or when I talk to other friends who are you know went to Harrow or went to Cambridge or whatever when they say it's not fair yeah. that's a step forwards like if the people yeah, that maybe, like maybe. like because if, if the, you know in, in that means in the future they will hopefully live their lives with that awareness and then that's yeah. how you sort of start to change things I guess maybe I don't know you hope so yeah but yeah. you have to have some actual structural change if you know? they if they do something about it yeah yeah but I think <laughs> a lot of people don't I mean like a school like Helen went to had seven X, one of the best schools in the country in terms of ed- educational atta- attainment a lot of those kids, they're going to go through, they're going to get great grades, they're going to go to Oxford and they're going to go into finance and they're going to send their kids to public school and the cycle repeats. They're not going to think about this stuff. Yeah. They're just going to think about what's best for their family. Yeah. I find it disgusting. <laughs> well, I mean... You, you, I, I can't consider myself a class worker. I don't middle, disagree with you. But. Because I'm a middle class <laughs> as I come and I'm, and I'm kind of, you know, upwardly mobile socially, you know. Yeah. My mum was the first of a family to go to university. Me and my sister did, and my cousin did. Uh, and so on my dad's side, we were the first. Yeah, I didn't really see myself as much of a Trojan horse, but it just pissed me off. I don't know, it's a weird thing, the class system. I've just, I mean, I've got such a fragmented, weird kind of class thing because well, my, that's what my, mum was, my mum was kind of, in a way, the, the, the opposite. Like, she was born into a kind of upper middle class, maybe yeah. up, almost upper class family, yeah. and then she's moved down. Like, she, yeah, yeah, like she, yeah. she I, I, you know, she, was, she became a nurse. You know, whereas you know her dad was a doctor, and yeah, then that sort yeah, of that yeah, gives yeah. you the kind of uh, well, it's interesting. I mean, I down with, you know, she ended up as a social worker, so she yeah. moved up a little bit. Yeah, to, you know, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Well, but yeah, I mean, class is a really weird concept. Yeah. Uh, it's quite slippery. And my dad was a documentary filmmaker, so that's kind of like the, there's this other thing about classes yeah. where there's bohemian classes as well. There's like the the media classes, or there's yeah. just different kinds of factors of all, of all of it. It's very strange. Yeah, I mean, like. As we just talked about, my dad grew up on a pretty rough, in a pretty rough bit of Coventry. Yeah, my mum grew up in a perfectly nice bit of um, Birmingham, but they were the family's definitely working class. But I would never call myself working class. That would be really fucking insulting yeah. to anyone who actually is working. Class. And, and her, I mean, I shouldn't say probably too much about it, but Helen's family, I think, in sensibility, they're quite upper middle class. They're lovely people, but they they didn't have very much money growing up. Yeah, it's they strange. They go on family it? holidays yeah. because they didn't have much cash. But the you know, I guess it's partly culture and priority as well as just cash but you, you mean talk about the public school system that's culture and cash aligned in a really vulgar unpleasant exploitative way yeah uh, I do feel quite strongly about it we're running a little bit over time but the last okay. question that I ask people is do you have anything to plug which is I guess we've covered a lot of that really oh yeah um, if you're interested in my music the soundoftheladies.com has a load of that stuff 
Uh, you can get the Sound of the Ladies albums. You can get the Science albums. Talks about the monthly podcast. You can click on there and download it. And, yeah. and, and I blog about music stuff and things that I find interesting on there as well. And if you're interested in the science stuff and outreach and complexity and cities, sociablephysics.com is the one. I even have two Twitter accounts as well. So I you social- do. I follow you twice. It's oh, one, one yeah. of those weird things. I've got three. It's really confusing having lots of... I don't yeah, know if you find yeah, it. You yeah, know, yeah, you do you ever like post from the wrong... And you, you post from the wrong one and you... Quite oh. careful about that. I do cross-post sometimes. So social, my social physics <laughs> account on yeah. Twitter, at sociable physics, that's the science stuff. I talk about science, engagement, same stuff I talk about on the sociable physics blog. At Martin Austwick, I just talk absolute shit. Yeah. Like it's, that's just my outlet for like stream of consciousness. I talk about baking. I talk about eggs quite a lot. I talk about music I'm listening to. Yeah, it's a Twitter account. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I, yeah. I, I occasionally want to eat for lunch, but I try and be more interested. Yeah. But it's, it's, uh, it's an opportunity for me to try and tell funny little stories, even if they're about eggs. I quite like the idea that Twitter is a storytelling medium in a really abstract way. Yeah, I'm, I'm really into that as well. My, yeah. my girlfriend's into, you know, the VSS, the hashtag very short story. Oh, okay. Um, so well, if you yeah. ever see that, there's a, like, if people do a story and then they put hashtag VSS, oh, it means they're okay. t- telling a story within the tweet. Oh, that's interesting. Um, okay. Yeah. I, was, I, mean, I meant it in the more abstract sense of that, just a, a kind of, um, I don't know, kind of creating a, a series of associations with like yeah, yeah, no, that's that's what I do. I do haikus sometimes. That's quite fun because that's perfect for Twitter. Yeah, food haikus. I think quite fun. Oh yeah, so those Mar- at Martin Austin, the sound of sociable physics, and sociablephysics.com. Well, that's great. Well, it's been it's been a really excellent getting better acquainted with you, Martin. Yeah, and it's, it's been, been really you nice. know, um, I'm really yeah really pleased to have met a new person uh, through the show, and that's always great. The last thing I ask people to do is to say goodbye to the audience. Oh, okay. Um, goodbye, everyone. Bye-bye. You can find Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter, at UBA Podcast. You can find it on Facebook. It's Getting Better Acquainted. Have a search on Facebook and like it. Or you can find it on the website, www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk. You can also subscribe by searching on iTunes and subscribing to us that way. And on the Stitcher Smart Radio app you can download for your smartphone from stitcher.com or through the app store there are lots of ways to get better acquainted